And so what I want us to do, though, is I don't want us just to say, okay, we're to be loving people, but I want us to understand why we're to be loving. Why is it that the distinguishing mark of a Christian is that we love God and we love others? Why is it that in John 13, 35, right after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says that it is by our love that people will know that we're his disciples? And then in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Whoever does not love abides in death, meaning they don't have eternal life in them, meaning they're not a follower of Jesus. So love becomes this defining quality that if we're a Christian, that we love one another, and there's no other category of Christians. Not cat- there's not Christians that love and Christians that don't love. As Christians, we love one another. And so I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. We're going to read Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. And each week we stand here when we read because we're reminding ourselves that this word is inspired by God. And it's given to us by His grace that we would be encouraged, be corrected, uh, and that we'd be equipped in our faith. And so here we go, verse 34, Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again now before we begin to preach through your word. And we ask that you bless the preaching of your word. Lord, we ask that your spirit would work now and that you would bring to fruition all that you desire through this word. And Lord, I pray that we as your church, as disciples, would grow in our understanding of love today, would be more sanctified today, that we'd become more like you today through the work of your spirit, through your word, that we would love one another we would love those in and outside the church, that the defining quality in our life would be love. And so, Lord, give us understanding today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we begin, and we see the Sadducees have failed to trap Jesus. Now, the Sadducees are an elite religious group. And they do not believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad. Do you see? Seriously, my wife told me that. Like, I don't know, we've been married like 17 years, so I don't know, year 15 or so. And I've never gotten that out of my head. I don't think I had ever heard that before she told me. Now, every time I read the word Sadducee, I just play that they're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. Do you see? So um, anyways, now you will always remember what distinguishes the Sadducees from the Pharisees. They don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad. You see? It just, it just works. Um, so they were not able to trap Jesus. And so now the Pharisees, they gather together, and the Pharisees are another religious group. And they're going to show their superiority over the Sadducees. 
They're going to stick it to Jesus. They're going to test him. And so they get together. They figure out the question that they're going to ask him. And they pick the most learned guy of the bunch, most likely. They pick this lawyer, which a lawyer would be a scribe. He'd be an expert in the Old Testament law. And so they get this guy, they nominate him, and he's going to be the one to go to Jesus and put him to the test. And so he asks him, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? To which now we come to the answer. Jesus responds not by giving one but two commands. Now the first command, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now that comes from the Shema. The Shema consists in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It starts with the Lord our God is one, and then it will go into verse 5, where it talks about we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, Jews would carry this verse with, with them wherever they go. This verse would be memorized, and they would recite it multiple times a day. This is a, this is a verse that everyone understood, they knew that to be a Jew was to love God with every part of their body. And so, uh, so that's the first verse, or the first command. And then Jesus gives them a second command that comes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what I want to do is take a few moments and just make a few comments on these commands, and then we'll begin looking at why is it that we are to be such a loving people. So number one, we see that the commands are prioritized. First one's love God. Second one is love man. We can only truly love others when we love God. In fact, uh, if we have a broken relationship with God, what we understand is that we will have a broken relationship with every person that we encounter and and we see this all the way going back to the garden of eden adam and eve are made in the image of god they enjoy his blessing and his rule but when they sin when they reject god and then god comes into the garden remember what happens god begins to ask a series of questions and he turns to adam and he's like what happened so adam does what any of us would do he blamed god and blamed woman He said, well, you made her, and she gave me the apple. It's not my fault. So quickly, we blame one another. Because of sin, our relationship with God is no longer healthy. It's been broken. We've rebelled against him, and now every relationship we have is tainted by sin. Sin corrupts relationships. This is why so many marriages end in divorce. And this is why we, we could... We could all give stories here on scars that we have from broken relationships. Every single person here could give a story on how they've been hurt by other people. Because we live in a fallen world. Because we have sin in our hearts. So, first thing Jesus lets us know is the first command is that we love God. Because when we love God, we will love others. The second thing he says is the commands are related to the law. If you look at verse 40, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Now the words law and prophets is a way to refer to the entire Old Testament. So all the teachings of the Old Testament is summarized by saying the law and the prophets. And when Jesus says the the law hangs on these two commandments, he means that they depend on them. Jesus is saying that... uh, The Old Testament, all the laws that we have, 
is the working out of these two commandments. Does that make sense? So every command that we have in the Old Testament is the working out of loving God and loving others. In fact, if you go to the Ten Commandments, you can see it so clearly. The Ten Commandments are broken up into two tables. You got commands one through four, which are all about how we love God, and then commands five through ten, which is all about how we love one another. And even though we can break them up cleanly, like on a table, these commands are together. To love God is to love other people. Next, we see that the commands define the entirety of the Christian life. And I just want you to see this. So when Jesus says that we're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind, he's calling us to use He's calling us to use every faculty to its fullest capacity to love God. Jesus is calling you to love God with every thought, with every action, with every word, with every emotion, with every affection. Do you know that? Like To be a disciple is to be absolutely devoted to God. In fact, uh, there are a lot of strange commands in the Old Testament. Have you ever come across some strange commands? In fact, in Leviticus 19, where we have the command, love your neighbor as yourself, in fact, right after that, in Leviticus 19, 19, come some of the strangest commands that we come across. And they're commands like this. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Okay? You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. All right. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two kinds of material. So, why? Like, why can't I sow cotton and wheat in the same field? Why can't I wear a cotton polyester blend shirt? Like, why does God care, like, with what my cow breeds with? Like, that's just weird, isn't it? Like, aren't these the commands that we scratch our heads at and we're just going, like, what is this talking about? But now, think about these strange commands and now think about them in light of that Jesus is saying everything you do. Everything you think, every way that you act, every thought that you have, every emotion, every affection is to be for the very glory of God. Everything you do is to love God. And so when, when God gives us commands about clothing, and when God gives us commands about how you, how you sow your seed in the ground, what we're learning is that he's interested in every single part of your life. Do you know that? Like everything you do is an act of worship to God. So Paul uses different language. Romans 12, he'll say, you're to be living sacrifices. Same thing though, right? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Entirety of your Christian life is in loving to God. Or as Paul says, be a living sacrifice. And then the command number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Well, everything you do in life is, is in a way in which you love yourself. You're never trying to intentionally hurt yourself. And so just as you look out for yourself, you feed yourself, you clothe yourself, you bathe yourself, which we're all very happy about. Just as we do all of those things, so he's saying we care for one another. The entirety of your life is to be in devotion to God and devotion to others. Everything we do is how we love one another. There are no 
areas in your life that these two commands do not touch. There's no off limits. There's no out of bounds. There's no, yeah, but you don't know my situation here. No, God's saying every situation you're in, we are to love one another. In fact, I want to read just some, some, uh, some verses in the New Testament that speak on love. And I think all these are up here. So you can just follow along. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. John 13, 35. We've already talked about this one. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Galatians 5, 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 John 3, 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. I mean, it just doesn't get more clear, does it? Our lives are characterized by love. And so I hope you just do that brief just run through of verses. You kind of feel that force. You begin to taste just what it is that God is calling us to. When we are saved, we're saved that we would live a new life, a life that loves God and loves one another. But, but here, are, I want us to answer two questions. Why? Like, why do we love one another? Like, how does that actually take place? And then number two, how do we do this? I mean, it's one thing for me to say, look, you need to be really loving all the time. Every emotion, every thought, every affection, that's how you live now. And you go, okay, that's how I live. Not going to happen, right? So how is it that we actually live out this truth? Why is this not just like a wish list? Like, all right, New Year's resolution, love everybody all the time. And by, you know, like noon, we already broke it. How is it, a, how is it not just a possibility but it's the reality of our lives. So, that's what I want us to do this morning. That's what I want us to unpack. How is it Jesus can say these commands, and how do we live them out? So number one, what I first want to see is God is love. We start with who our God is. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, in fact, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John uh, chapter 4, we're going to be in 1 John 4, uh, and I think chapter 3 a little bit here today. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God sa- or John says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in 1 John 4, 16, so just eight verses farther, it says, God is love. Now, when, when we read that God is love, that's different than me saying you are loving. Because when we say that God is love, we're not saying that God is loving at times. We're not saying that he has a loving mood or a loving personality. We're not even saying that he possesses loving qualities. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying that God is love. Everything he does is loving. Every action, every word, everything he does is love. 
This means that creation is an act of love. It's the overflow of his love. That's why he creates. That's why when we see sunsets and mountains and planets and stars and grassy fields and blue skies, thunderstorms, beaches, those are all things that are the display of his love. He creates those, puts those out in creation as an act of his love. And do you know that when he makes you and forms you in your mother's womb, that was also an act of love? You being created by God is an act of love. Do you know that? The very being, the reason you're here, the reason anything exists, comes out of the overflow of God's heart. But there's a problem. And we know what the problem is if we're familiar with the Christian uh, the story, the Bible, that we don't love God. So we understand that God is love, but then we understand that we, we are definitely not love. But the Bible says is that we are sinners, and what that means is we've rejected God. We've denied God. And so let me just read a verse from Romans. Paul describes what it means that we have rejected God. In, in Romans 1.21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. So I want to unpack that for a moment. We do not honor God, and we don't give Him thanks. So let me, let me just translate. We are glory thieves. Okay, we, we seek to steal His glory. God is the one who created all things. He sustains all things. Everything in the world has been created with the sole purpose of glorifying God, of pointing everything back to God. God is supreme. He's infinite. He's perfect in every way. There's no one and no thing that compares to him. He alone is worthy of glory, of honor, and praise. And yet, because we're sinful, we reject him. And we say, nope, all the glory, all the honor you should have, I'm going to give it to something else. I'm going to give it to myself or to other people or to other things. We attempt to steal his glory. Now, I think it might be more helpful to think of it in like terms of marriage. I think it helps us understand the gravity of it. Um, when a husband and wife are married, they become one, right? They, they belong to one another. His body is hers, and her body is his. It's this beautiful picture of love and unity that, that we have. Now, imagine a wife giving her body to everyone but her husband. She takes what is specially his, what belongs to him, and she says, I'm going to give it to everyone else. As sinners, that's what we do with God's glory. We've been made in his image that with every heartbeat that we have, we reflect his glory. We point it back to him and we love him. But rather than doing that, we'd rather worship creation. We would deny him and we would seek to steal his glory and give it to the things that we want. And so just as a husband would be righteously angry at any such action, so is our God. I mean, we've we got to really never underestimate the gravity of our offense against God. Like we can't ever underestimate that, that offense. And so, so what does God do? What does this God, who is love, what does he do? 
Well, he doesn't hit the massive reset button, which is probably what you and I would all do if we're God and all of creation just kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. We're like, well, fine, I'll send you there right now. We just hit the button and it's all done, right? But rather, he does the unthinkable. God sends his son Jesus as the demonstration of his love. So we have God as love, and we don't honor him, we don't love him, and so what does this loving God? He sends his son to demonstrate, to display his love. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. Do you notice the wording? How does God manifest his love? God says, I'm going to manifest my love. I'm going to let you know I'm a loving God. And how does he do that? Through the sending of his son. It's Christmas. Right? That's what we celebrate. The sending of the son. The son becoming incarnate, taking flesh on. That we would live on this earth one day where he would die on a cross. And God says, I do that to demonstrate my love. You see, you see, I could tell you that I'm a very loving person, but if I don't ever do anything for you, if I don't give you anything or serve you or, or say anything nice to you, you would probably begin to go, hmm, he's probably not really that loving of a person, right? Like, love must be revealed. It cannot be concealed. God can't say, I'm love, and then not ever show. Love must be revealed. Which, like on a really quick rabbit trail, which is why the Trinity is so important. Just real quick. It's only because there is a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit that God, for all of past eternity, before creation, could actually love someone because He's three persons. A non-Trinitarian God cannot love anyone before creation. Therefore, He would create because He needs someone to love. Just real quick there. The Trinity matters in everything in the Christian life. So, the God who has always loved within himself because he's Father, Son, Spirit, now creates out of the overflow of that love, which is why we can say love is always revealed. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father, and he shows that love in creation, then ultimately through the sending of his Son. So don't ever just glaze over Trinity. It's like one of those really weird things. No, it matters everywhere. And will we totally grasp it? No. It's definite mystery there. But it defines everything when we come to think the Christian life. Okay, rabbit trails back. Um, love must be revealed. It cannot be concealed. This is why we give gifts. And so, G, so God says, I'm love. I'm going to manifest my love. I'm going to show you that I'm loving. In fact, if we go to the next verse, verse 10. In this is love. So again, it's, it's this is love. And he's going to tell us, what has God done? How has he shown his love? Not that we have loved God, but he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, you all remember what the word propitiation means, right? What is it? Wrath absorber. It's like that word that we use a whole lot here, because we need to know that one. 
Jesus came to absorb the wrath of God. So God is love. We've tried to steal his glory. We've denied him. We've rejected him. We deserve hell. And so rather than just sending us to hell, God says, I'm going to display my love. I send my son so he'll go to the cross, he'll die, and he'll absorb my wrath. So that if we believe in him, all the wrath that you and I should receive, every single last drop of that has been absorbed in Christ. So no longer does Jesus have any wrath against us. But that's why we have peace. And that's why we can be justified. So that's what we have here. That's what, that's what God does. He displays His love for us at the cross so we could be saved. So why do we love? We love God because He is glorious and perfect and He is love and He has shown His love by sending His Son to die on the cross that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. So that's why we love. It's the gospel. It's all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I think many of us would probably get that if we had to answer the question, why do we love? We might say something like, well, because God first loved us. Because God sent his son Jesus. And we would all be right there. But then if someone was to say, but, but how do you do that? How do you now love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind? How do you love others as you love yourself all the time? How are we these living sacrifices? How is it that with all of our affections and thoughts and words we now love? How is it that we now love our enemies? How is it that we now love those who persecute us? How is it that we can now love those who hold different political and social and sexual and financial positions than we do? How is it that we as a church bear with one another and we maintain unity here? How is it that we can now forgive others and be gracious to those who slander and hurt us. Like how? To answer that, just go on a little bit further in 1 John 4. Whoever, this is verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. I don't read those words too quickly. Do you see the word God abides in him? Do you see that? God abides in him, he and God. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that there's a union that's taken place. That we are now united to Christ, and he lives in us. We've been forgiven of our sins and now God dwells in us. That's how we love one another. The God who is love now lives in us that we would now live a life of love. That's the point. We have God as love. God reveals his love by sending his son Jesus to the cross. When we believe in him, he now lives in us that we would now live a life of love. Do you see how that works? The God who is love, the God who revealed his love, now lives in us that we would love one another. I think 1 John 3, so if you just go back maybe a page or, or look further up in the column, 1 John 3, 9, it helps. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So what he's saying is there, 
is when you become a Christian, you, do no, you no longer keep sinning all the time. It's not saying we're perfect. That's not what it's saying. But when it says we no longer make a practice of sinning, our lives are no longer 100% characterized by just sin all the times. But now we seek to love God. We seek to love others. We seek to live like Jesus. Now the question is, why? Because God's seed now abides in us. Do you know why you look and act like your mom or dad? Because you got their DNA in you, right? And it comes out in the way you act, comes out in the way you look, for good or for worse, right? For good or for worse. Do you know now why do we love one another? Because God's DNA is now in us. God is literally in us. That he would shine through our lives. That we would now love one another. There was a, there was a pastor named Charles Simeon. And and he became the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England on November 10th, 1782. He would pastor that church for 54 years. It's a long time. But the congregation did not want him when he first came. In fact, uh, so he, he first comes, and he's going to begin teaching some lectures on Sunday afternoon. They won't let him. And in fact, they prevent him from teaching, and they hire a guy named Mr. Hammond. Mr. Hammond is the guy they wanted to be their pastor. And so they said, look, Simeon, you can't teach Sunday afternoon. We already hired a guy to do that. So Simeon said, okay, well, well I'll go and I'll teach some Sunday evening services. And what they would do, they'd come lock the church doors, and they would not let Simeon in. So they prevented him from even coming in the building. So then uh, on Sunday mornings, when he would be preaching, there'd be these pew holders, these people that would come in, and they would prevent you from sitting in the pews. So if that was happening here today, there'd be people, and however that actually took place, they would prevent you. So if you were here, you'd either be standing or sitting in the aisle or the nooks and the crannies of this room. And the crazy thing is people kept coming. And so Simeon said, you know what, I'm going to go buy some chairs. I can at least fix this problem, and I'll go put chairs in the aisles, chairs in the corners, so people can sit. So what the church wardens did, don't you love that word, church wardens? Like, like what office is that? Definitely we're going to bring that one back. I mean, that just communicates love. So the, the church wardens, they take the chairs, they throw them out in the courtyard. and say, you're not bringing that in here. Simeon would try to go visit people. So he'd go and he'd visit the church members. He'd knock on their door. Nobody would come. Nobody would come. That happened for 10 years. A decade. And it would take two more years until he could actually teach on Sunday afternoons. Two more years. 12 years. Unwanted. Why'd he stay? See, if, if, if you and I are to answer that question, we go, well, some people are pretty stubborn. Some people are pretty bullheaded. Some people are just that tough. And they can press on. But I'll tell you, it has nothing to do with Simeon. It has nothing to do with, with how strong and how tough he is. It has everything to do with the love of God. He loved God. And he loved his people. 
And so when he was squeezed through with the pressure, and when he was slandered, what came out? Love of God. Love of others. I want you to think about this verse. 1 Corinthians 13. We, we know this verse. It's, it's, read at, it's read at weddings. Probably was read at your wedding. But it's, it's kind of a rebuke also. But it's a, re, it's a description of love. And, and Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me ask you, are you patient? Are you okay that not everyone in the world sees things the way you do? Do you try to change people in your timing? Are you okay with God's timing? Are you arrogant? And of course you say, oh, I'm not arrogant. Let me ask you, are you always right? Do you endure with people? Do you endure with those who don't share the same worldview as you? Do you endure with those who don't share the same cultural view right now in the United States regarding the pandemic? Do you endure with those who have different political views than you? Do you bear with one another? I mean, just, this is what this text is asking us to do, right? So God says, I am love. I send my son to demonstrate my love. And now I live in you that you would be loving. So rightfully, we should say, all right, just, could you give me a cheat sheet? What does that look like? Here's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. This is what love looks like. So if we're going to love God and love others, this is kind of the cheat sheet on what that looks like. And I think as Christians, and you, you, can, you can let this, you know, wrestle with this for yourself. I think as Christians, though, we're often guilty of not being patient with others. I think there's a reason that it starts off with love is patient. We, we're often not patient with others. We claim to have a right view where others are, but we often have an exaggerated view where we're at. What do I mean by that? We often think we're, we are more mature than we are, while at the same time, we, we know precisely where everyone else is, right? And I think because of that, we're not patient. We, we want everyone to be where we're at. We want everyone to have the understanding that we have today because we think we're so far along. And I, I want to remind you, think back about how you came to faith. Was Jesus patient with you? Let's just think about that. Think about how you were saved. How old were you when you were saved? What had you done prior to being saved? Was he patient with you? Was he kind? Did he, did he not draw you to him? And he does that in love. That is the gospel as he draws us to him. In fact, in, in Romans 2 and I think it's 2 Peter, we're told that the times we live in right now is the time for repentance. It's the time for salvation. 
God is demonstrating his patience right now. How does he do that? By letting the gospel continue to go forth that more and more people would hear the truth so more and more people would enter into the kingdom of God. He just doesn't say, you're not where you're supposed to be right now and cuts everyone off. But he's patient. And that's how we're to be with one another. Think about, think about when you get angry, what would it look like if you were patient at that moment? Go back to the last time you got angry. Just go back to what it was. You're angry at your wife. You're angry at your husband. You're angry at your kids. You're angry at work. You're angry because whatever it is didn't go the way you wanted it to or, or whatever. What would it look like for you to have been patient at that moment? Would it look the same? I doubt it. Because I don't think most of us are really guilty of righteous anger all the time. Like when Jesus flips the tables over, you know, in, in the temple, and he has righteous anger, and we always want to say, well, I think my anger is righteous. Like, come on, if, if we're like, be honest, like maybe 2% of our anger is ever righteous, and it probably doesn't even stay that long, stay righteous for very long. Right? Because sin wants to hijack it. But here we're, we're told that God now lives in us. That his character, that himself would shine through us. God's love, is, God's love in you is greater than anyone's offense against you. Do you know that? God's love in you is greater than anyone's offense. I mean, just remember Stephen? Stephen's being stoned. And what does he say as, as stones are being thrown at him? Forgive them, Father. How does he love them at that moment? It's not because of who he is. It's because of God inside of him. To say you cannot love someone is to deny the presence of God within you. So just remember that it would be an act of non-faith at that moment. To say we can't love certain people. So there's many ways that we could look at how do we apply this? How do we apply it at, at home in various ways? And so let me just say this first. Um, husbands, when you love your wives, do you know what you're actually doing at that moment? If God is love, what are you doing when you're loving your wife? Who are you showing them? You're showing them God, right? Wives, when you love your husbands, when you love your children, who are you showing well, you're showing them God at that moment. When we love unbelievers, when we love those who persecute us, when, when our missionaries are being told, recant or we will kill you, and they say, no, we can't, we're going to stay here and we're going to continue to love you and serve you. Who are they demonstrating at that moment? They're demonstrating Christ. See, God lives in us now that at every moment we would show His love in this world. And, and let me just say this. We need to pray for one another to do that. Paul asks in Colossians that they would pray for him, that his, his words would be seasoned with love and grace. So one of the ways that we're going to grow in love is by praying for one another. It's by coming back to the gospel, by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. There's a story in Luke 7 about needing to be reminded of the gospel and that the more we understand what we have been saved from, the more we will then love one another. But what I want to do for a moment 
is just bring this right here into this room. Uh, in John 13, 35, what we read earlier, one of those verses when we just kind of rattled through some of the verses in the New Testament, Jesus said that the way that we show people that we are disciples is by our love, especially for one another. We're to love all people, but especially believers we are to love because we're family. We're literally family forever in the kingdom of God. And so I just want to ask you, what would that look like if we come on a Sunday morning to love one another? Because I don't think we don't come to love, but I think we forget that we're to come to love one another. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think it's a high priority. And I'm not trying to say, like, we're not trying to be nice, but I think we just forget it and we neglect it. It kind of moves to the back row or third row or fourth row in our mind of importance, which is why we often will come late, leave early. We serve where we want, when we want, just often. And so I just want to just press on. We're to be loving because God is working in us. So what would that look like for when we gather, whether it's on a Sunday morning or table groups or whenever it is, what would it look like for us to love one another, for us to come with the sole purpose how do I show others the love of God today? Well, I think we'd probably come early and stay late because we want to meet others. We want to connect with them. We want to encourage them. You know, my mom, she, she did that really, really well. She would show up early every single Sunday, like 30 minutes. And, and there's already greeters that the church had, but she'd greet everyone that sat within like 30 rows of her. Like, she would just do that. And she did it for like 25 years. You know what happens after 25 years of doing that? You know every single person there. I think we'd come early, we'd stay late. We'd greet others. We'd look for needs and we'd seek to meet them. We wouldn't just say, well, nobody asked me, but we would go up to people. Hey, is there anything I can do? How can I love? How can I serve? We would not be easily offended. I think at times, I think we, we realize this, sometimes, and I've been in these conversations where after a church, someone will come up to me and say, hey, someone said this. And I'll just tell you, and I'm like, yeah, and? And they're offended at it. And, and I, I think if we were loving one another, we'd let love cover many more offenses, right? Like we'd be patient with one another. We'd realize maybe the person just said it wrong. Maybe they had a bad, who knows, but we just let love covers offenses. We would not be easily offended. We'd love to meet new people and welcome them. We'd take people out to lunch. We would take notes of those who are hurting so that we could call them and visit them throughout the week. We'd take notice of those who were not here so we could check on them. I mean, I, I, just, want to, I just want to urge you. This is who we are as God's people how can we display this more and more? I think what we can be guilty of is we go, well, the pastor or the elders, and they kind of take those things, or those things are all taken care of, as if when we show up, we don't have responsibilities. And I just want to encourage us, our number one responsibility, every one of us, is how do we love one another? So maybe on the drive every Sunday morning, husbands and wives and children, you can talk in the car and go, we're, here, we're saved to be the people of God. How are we going to love one another today? How can we love people in the church? And just brainstorm areas. What, what could that look like? I just want to encourage you to begin thinking through how do we love one another? Listen, God uses every word. 
small and big in every action, every act of kindness you do as a means of advancing his kingdom. Do you know that? Sometimes I think we think it's only the big moments, but he uses every word, which is why he says, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, with everything you do, all of your words, all of your actions, big and small, I will use to advance the kingdom. Your words, your actions have matter, matter. When we love others, when we love God, we're like, we're like a lighthouse in a dark world, and we're directing people from the destruction of sin to the safety of the cross. That's what we do as we love one another. And so, what I want you to know, and I think what Jesus is communicating to us today, is that our God is love. He's demonstrated his love at the cross. And he says that when you believe in me, I now dwell in you. That the very love that you see at the cross will now burst forth from you at every moment. And you can love your wives, and you can love your husbands, and you can love your coworkers and difficult family members, not because of how strong you are, but because of how great our God is and that he lives in you. And so I want us to go to prayer and we're going to take communion. As we take communion, I just want you to think, this is celebrating that God is love as we do this. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we praise you. We praise you that you are love. And that everything you do is an act of love. It's a demonstration of your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your patience. And Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone here that first that we would have know that we would know you. That we would know that we are saved and that you are in us. And I pray that we would love like you. That we would be patient and kind. We would not be arrogant or rude. We would not be irritable or resentful. We would not insist our own way. But may we may we bear with one another. May we endure with one another. May your love shine forth through every action that we do. And may every time we gather on a Sunday morning be a time of rejoicing when we are sharing the love of you, our eternal God, with one another. And we celebrate the fact that you have loved us by sending us your son, Jesus. Lord, every day may we meditate on the cross. May we remember your great love so we would remember what you are shining forth through us every moment. Lord, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.